From Gimlet, I'm Alex Bloomberg, and this is Without Fail, the show where I talk with artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, visionaries of all kinds about their successes and their failures and what they've learned from both. Greetings again from my home closet. Actually, I've upgraded this week to a weird little tent arrangement with towels on top, so I don't have to put them over my head. And of course, we're in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. Everyone at Gimlet is working from home. And this week on Without Fail, we're going to bring you some coronavirus counter-programming. We've got a regular Without Fail episode for you, an interview we taped before the country entered lockdown. And before we get started, a quick warning. This episode contains some very graphic language and inflammatory ideas. So take care while listening. The person I'm talking to today has a totally unique and really fascinating story. I'll let her introduce herself. Who are you and and how do you um, describe yourself to people that you've just met? Oh, that's a good question. I still, it's it's very weird. (laughs) Um, So I... My name is Megan Feltroper, and I am a former member of Westboro Baptist Church. The Westboro Baptist Church, for those of you who haven't heard of it, is described by Wikipedia as, quote, an American church known for its use of inflammatory hate speech, especially against LGBT plus people, Catholics, Orthodox Christians, atheists, Muslims, Jews, and U.S. soldiers and politicians, which, you know, it's a pretty comprehensive list. The church was founded in 1955 by a man named Fred Phelps. Good evening, godless sodomites. America has become a nation of godless sodomites who mock and scoff about their sodomite sins, thereby demonstrating that America is a nation of fag-enabling fools. This, of course, is Fred Phelps in a video taped for the Westboro Baptist Church. Most of the church members were members of Phelps' own family, and the church was famous for protesting the funerals of servicemen and women, state houses, public parks, university commencements, any group they felt was advancing what they called the gay agenda. And their tactic was to use the most shocking and offensive language they could. Here's a church member addressing counter-protesters at one of Westboro's protests. God hater, you'll put up with any kind of filth. You'll stand and applaud dykes and fags, slobbering in the streets, eating feces and getting married. But you don't want anybody calling a pervert a pervert. So yeah, in fact, the name of Westboro's website is godhatesfags.com. And that brings us to why the who are you and what do you do question is so complicated for Megan Phelps Roper. Because Megan Phelps Roper is the granddaughter of Fred Phelps, Westboro's founder. And for over 20 years, Megan was a member of the Westboro Baptist Church and eventually became one of the church's leading spokespeople before she suddenly left it all to become a spokesperson for a very different belief system. What about redemption and reform? But we'll get to all that later in the interview. Megan told me that she grew up in a neighborhood on the outskirts of Topeka amid a huge extended family. Most of her neighbors in the block were other Westboro members. Most of them were family. And they shared a huge common backyard with a swimming pool. And it was a short walk across that common backyard to the church. So the, the church was, was absolutely the center of our lives and the work of the church, the protest, where we would go out every single day and protest in our hometown. Um, at, least, uh, at least several protests um, every day. Like that was a huge wow. part of, yeah. And you would do that every single day. 
I personally, I would say almost every day, um, but the church, absolutely every single day, we were protesting. Did you understand what you were protesting? Uh, I mean, not exactly. The, the, of course, when you're five, there's, you can understand certain things. And I think the way that my, my mother um, explained it was that, you know, these people are doing things that they're not supposed to which as a kid, like, you, you understand this concept. Right. And I understood that being gay was, you know, two people of of the same sex. Um, you know, at that point, I'm sure I thought of it as kissing or something like that. Right, um, right. We were going out there to say, you can't live this way. You can't do these things. Like, that's not okay. Got it. And And how did your parents describe what was wrong? What would, what did they tell you that the, Bible said about it? Like, what was the the theory? Um, so, it? we were reading the Bible every single day as a family. Every evening, we would get together and talk about this. But it was, it's really funny when you say that. Cause like, so, one of the first Bible verses, we, we memorized Bible verses. One of the first Bible verses I memorized, my grandfather would quote it during the Sunday sermons, um, you know, Leviticus 18.22, thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind, it is abomination. And for several years, mm. I thought that was talking about telling a lie. And I remember being like probably eight or nine <laughs> and sitting in church and my grandfather um, quoting that. And all of a sudden it hit me like what kind of lying it was talking about. Oh. Um, like, a, <laughs> And I just remember my face turning so red. And I was like, oh my God, I can never tell anybody that I misunderstood that for all these years. <laughs> and also just being mortified. Yeah. <laughs> Like my 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 son is nine. I don't think he knows what <laughs> lying with is a is a euphemism of. You uh, know, like well, I, I think that's we're not quite there yet. You know, like he's just. Did you? Well, yeah. When you're reading all these Bible verses, talking about, um, I mean, it uses that language. You know, all over the Bible. So right. and we we read everything. Um, so. Um, so that's part of it. But also my grandfather would, you know, from the time I was very young, you know, and before I had this realization even, he would stand in the pulpit and describe, you know, in great detail um, gay sex as he understood it, like golden showers and describe what that meant and rimming and describe what that meant and all kinds of, I mean, this just absolutely, um, at the time, of course, mortifying to listen to this from the pulpit. Right. And how did you feel about your your grandfather? Like what was what kind of like presence was he in the family? Um it's very strange. Like I, I mostly I my relationship with him was very positive. Um he was my gramps and he was you would throw us in the pool and and call us love bug and you know just it was very sweet and affectionate. Um but he was also, you know, the guy who stood in the pulpit, you know, with this very he was a very fire and brimstone preacher. Um, and then there was also the fact that the way that my mom, especially, and the other adults in the church would talk about him, you know, talk about, oh, daddy's having one of his fits again, something like that. So uh, you understood that you didn't you didn't want to cross him. You didn't want to um, do anything that would draw his displeasure. So this was, so you started picketing when you were five. After that, how fast did the protests grow? So— all I remember is that it that just became the thing that we did. This was what our family did, um, was to go out and protest. So it became kind of exciting to go protest because there was, you know, huge groups of counter-protesters, you know, people yelling and screaming. And, and you know, of course, as a child, I, I believe my parents when they tell me, 
you know, we are the good guys. Like, we have the truth of God. This is the, you know, divine commandments from the Lord. Um, and you feel like you are standing against evil. And and so, yeah, you, I, I was I was proud to be out there. I was so grateful to God that, that I got to be part of this group that— that had the truth and how sad for these horrible people who are out there counter-protesting us. Eventually, the family's protesting drew international attention. It was October of 1998, and something had just happened that was making headline news. Matt Shepard, the gay college student savagely beaten last week in Wyoming, died this morning. He had been tied to a fence, pistol-whipped, and left to die. Two suspects will be charged with the murder— President Clinton today condemned the attack and said Congress should pass hate crime legislation. While the rest of the country and the world recoiled at the savagery of this act, Westboro saw it as an opportunity. They wanted to take advantage of the attention the crime was drawing to get out their anti-gay message. So a whole contingent of Westboro Baptist Church members showed up in Wyoming to picket Matthew Shepard's funeral. They stood outside the church holding their signature homophobic signs and chanting homophobic slurs all while his family was inside. What stands out to me, and I think a lot of people who look at that, is just, like, just the unbelievable cruelty of, like, showing up at a young man's funeral and protesting. Yeah. It's no, no question. It's something that, like, when I, I, I talk about these things and I think about these things, I, I remember some of the things that we did that I did and the way that I thought and the way that I felt. And I, I know that those things were a product of my upbringing and of the environment that I was in. And it, it shocks me and, and fills me with a kind of shame and regret. I was so convinced that we had the truth and that any pain that it caused other people was justified because hell is long, you know? And it's, 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 it's almost like, yeah. You know, if you look at an older version of yourself, you know, and sometimes it's like, how is that even, that seems like a different person. I never imagined being Matthew Shepard's mother. And now I'm a mother. I have a daughter who's 16 months old. And I cannot imagine having her grow up to be the age that he was. And and then to see him beaten and left for dead and to think about that happening to her. And I, it, it is... It is devastating to think about for us to co- to have gone in those moments and, and said those kinds of things. Yeah. What did you all think about Matthew Shepard's mother, I guess? What was Westboro's narrative? Yeah. And that person's feelings in your head or into your worldview, like what— what were you telling yourselves? Oh, this was this was totally his parents' fault for not teaching him the truth about God and what God required of, of him. And she was enabling his sin. My mom would say that the idea is you saturate your children in the Word of God. And the fact that this had happened to Matthew Shepard, um, this was a judgment of God on his family uh, and on his community for for allowing and encouraging him in this sinful lifestyle that God calls an abomination. So we we just completely discount, like I said, and and turn away from any real human experience um, and just basically you only see it from this very doctrinaire perspective. There is no real empathy. There's no ability to see it from any perspective other than this one, you know. Um, were, were there moments where—, where I don't know, you did 
where empathy did poke through or that there was some where or some doubt did poke through in 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 these times when you were doing these these protests not so much when i was younger um I just, I I accepted all of it, you know, basically whole cloth. Right. It really wasn't until, I mean, I think the first time that I really remember um, experiencing doubt um, was this moment when I was 16 and we started protesting. Uh, we started protesting my high school during lunch. Um, and obviously that didn't really earn us any friends. Um you know, that there was a, a girl that year who started a gay-straight alliance, and she had written a letter to the editor, and I wrote a response. Well, I wrote a response, but then um, my aunt, actually, that was the one we sent in, in my name. My aunt had written this response, and there was a line in there um, where, in my voice, she's saying that I've listened to, you know, the, the preacher's of this city and this community and the leaders and other people's arguments and that my grandfather's um, preaching is more agreeable to my heart, something like that. And and I remember being Mm -hmm. repulsed by that line because we never appealed to our feelings. You know, later we would have a sign, God hates your feelings. The truth of the Bible had nothing to do with our feelings. And you know, this um, this is maybe a silly thing to focus on, but it was just one of those things. The f- my first kind of inkling that that we were relying on our own feelings to decide whether the Bible, as we understood it, was the truth. Um, and so it was this, this this contradiction. So that line from your aunt was the first crack. That's... <laughs> it, it was. It was. It wouldn't come back to me for like I, I felt this you know extreme revulsion when I read it. I didn't say anything to anybody at the time, and it wasn't until. Like several years later, that it really hit me why why that line was so discomforting to me, and and why was it again? What, it's it's the it? contradiction it? to say. So we had this. My mom would constantly quote this Bible verse, you know, where um, it says, "The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and who can know it?" And then in this in this um, letter, my aunt is saying that the Bible is more agreeable to my heart. So the short version is we're using our hearts to authenticate the moral truth of the Bible and the same Bible that says our hearts are uh, wicked and that there's, you can't trust them. And anyway, right. so it's like you, you, you can't trust your feelings except our feelings are the only reason we believe that the Bible is true. So it's just this contradiction. And it, it, it seems like a, 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 a small thing, but no, no, I, I, for somebody who based their whole line, lives around these, these doctrines, it was, it was everything, you know? Right. Well, and it's also like sort of like you, what you guys are engaged in is sort of like, in my mind, it's sort of like the, the idea that you had in your head was like in order to do the things you were doing, which is to just go and just say incredibly hurtful, hateful things to lots and lots of people all the time. You had to believe that you're acting on behalf of this God who wanted you to do that, like who is like a pretty sort of like harsh, vengeful being and is like gonna like kill people's sons uh, for being gay. And that that's the being that you're working for. And you have to believe that. And there's all this, and there's this book that's telling you that. And then for your aunt to be like, oh, and also we just want to believe it, or it makes us feel better to believe this. Right. All of a sudden that's sort of like, wait, wait, (laughs) we're doing some pretty intense shit here, people. Right. (laughs) If it's all based on a feeling, uh, I don't know. I can see that. 
Yeah, and it was really funny. I, I didn't, th- I couldn't get there at the time. I couldn't actually follow. I couldn't see that through to its conclusion at the time. I just kind of instinctively and immediately suppressed it. Yeah, and turned away from it. You know. Yeah. Like, oh, it's just a line in a, in a letter. Not a big deal. Coming up after the break, Megan finds more cracks in the Westboro belief system, and it is a big deal. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with Megan Phelps Roper. After graduating high school, Megan attended Washburn University. When she graduated, she took a job assisting her mother, who was the spokesperson for Westboro Baptist Church. One of her first duties was to take Westboro's hate speech and protests online by getting a Twitter account. And this decision to get on social media would turn out to change the course of Megan's life. What kinds of what kinds of things were you tweeting early on? What was the what was your first tweet? Do you remember? <sighs> oh. One of the earliest ones, um, I tweeted a line from, you know, because, you know, working so closely with my mother, who as the church's spokesperson, you know, she was constantly on on the phone talking to, um, you know, radio stations. And I would sit there and listen to my mom's side mm-hmm. of the conversation all hours of the day and night. Um, and... And one of the things, she was on the, on the radio with some um, Atlanta radio station and they were trying to like trick her and trap her or something. And and they said, um, the only fill in the blank, fill, fill in the rest of the sentence. The only good Jew is a, and she said, repentant Jew. And I tweeted mm-hmm. that exchange and said, the only answer that suffices. So it'd be just like, I would just take things that other people were saying generally. Um, and you know, if some newsworthy right. thing happened, you know, a celebrity would die or something, and I would tweet that they were in hell because we felt very free to just, you know, declare that people were in hell based on our, mm-hmm. just our own judgments. And pretty quickly, you know, people would start to, you know, retweet those messages, and then other people would see them and get angry. Um, and more and more people would see our message, and the amount of hatred and vitriol that would be reflected back at me um, just grew and grew. Right. Well, I, just one question on this, which is like, so it's one thing to sort of like think like, okay, we we know the way, everybody else is wayward. We're going to like sort of like carry on about our business and like we're the only ones with the secret and everybody else is going to hell. And that's like a choice that like many Orthodox groups make. Um, but what was weird about Westboro is that like you were, you were that. But you were also very, very public and also on this sort of campaign to sort of get in everybody's face. And I'm assuming that's because there was some element of 
missionary zeal to this? Like you wanted to share your truth with everyone? Is is, is that what this was about? Not, not exactly. I mean, so another one of the very first, I think this was the first verse that I memorized. My grandfather would quote all the time. It was his, the charge issued to him when he was um, at his ordination. Um, it said, cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgressions. Um, and we... So we saw that that was our duty. But isn't with the expectation that at least some of the people that you're warning will heed that warning? Right. Okay, so here's where the Westboros, they they are predestinarians. So they believe that God has predestinated exactly who will repent and who will not, who will go to hell um, for eternity. So you understand that the vast majority of people are heading for hell and that by preaching them, our only duty, we thought, was to publish this message. So we're going to publish the truth and it will have the exact effect that it's supposed to have. Most people will reject it. So for the people who reject it, it is their condemnation and that the people who, the very few people who accepted it, the very small remnant, as they're called in in the book of Isaiah, um, it is their salvation. Got it. So you, it wasn't your duty to like win people. Your your job was simply to say exactly, and then and then literally God would sort it out. Essentially, yep. If they were going to heed your warning, that was that wasn't up to you. Absolutely, that was that was predestined. Got it. Exactly. So so given that, and given that you were sort of like getting most attention, and you're now on Twitter, which is like if ever there was an invention designed to get people's attention, it's Twitter. How? how what did you do emotionally with all the hate that was coming back at you? Um, sort of like you're you're sort of like presenting these very hateful messages, and then you're just and then people are like responding, and they're they're just like you know coming back at you. How, what did you do with all that? For the most part, I dismissed it the way that I did. You know, whenever we were you know standing on the picket line, and people would would say you know horrible things. Um, you just understand mm-hmm. this is this is this goes with the territory. And my mom would always say whenever people would bring up the fact that we were so hated, she would say they crucified Jesus. Like he was hated. Right. Like this 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 again. This goes with the territory. This is it's perfectly fitting right. that people hate us. Um, and so that's generally how I how I dealt with it. However, I also recognized that almost immediately this started happening where you know people would would respond to the things I was posting and they would focus on. Like the way that I said it, yeah. they, they would focus on aspects of the message that were not actually the message itself. So, for instance, Westboro, like we would constantly insult people. Like we would be telling them the truth of God as we understood it, but then we would also be throwing in personal insult, ad hominem attacks. You know, telling people to eat a salad, like if it was uh, somebody who was overweight or something. And why? How was that to the glory of God? I know, right? That's something that I recognized at the time. I saw that we were working against our own interest. Um, you know, we're supposed to be preaching the truth, and we're just making people mad, and we're no longer talking about these verses. We're talking about this person's defensiveness about mean things we said to them that were totally unnecessary. Mm-hmm. And so this Twitter is like this this feedback loop where I could see how the conversation was going awry, and I started to change how I talked to people. It almost became like a game to me, actually, um, where people would come at at me really angry and defensive, um, upset about what I was what I was preaching, and I would, you know, use sarcasm or self deprecation and um, frequent use of emojis and things like to to kind of put them off balance. 
Um, but there were other things that happened too. Um, people who, instead of, you know, sending me all these, you know, condemnatory things and insults and threats, they would ask questions. For Megan, who had gotten on Twitter for the express purpose of condemning the masses for their sins, this shift to a friendly dialogue with people was disorienting and exciting. And I started to see these people not just as, you know, you know, my enemy. I, they weren't just hellbound sinners. Like, this is a, a person. And the, the fact that I had this, like, physical distance from them, um, you know, I, I, like I said, I went to public school. Like, it's not like I never had any interaction IRL in real life with outsiders. It was that when I, whenever I was in physical space with other people, I knew to keep them at arm's length. I knew not to trust them. And having the internet and this, you know, this buffer from them, it just allowed me, I just, I just assumed that I was safe. You know, I just, I just, it allowed me to be open and vulnerable in a way that I never had been before. And I started to really like these people. Like the fact that it was only 140 characters, like how much trouble can you get into in 140 characters, right? <laughs> right. But of course I started to develop these, like, Twitter was, I, it, it became a, a source of community for me. Like, um, and I tried to, you know, in my own mind kind of, um, you know, I didn't, put a lot of I wouldn't have I wouldn't have ever said it in those words when I was at the church because you're not supposed to you know friendship with the world is enmity with God but it was absolutely um, an outlet a form of connection with outsiders that I I I really wanted did you know you wanted it not no <clears throat> no and I definitely would have denied it at the time like I remember there's a I was on the Tyra Bank show with my mom and my sister um a couple times, and I, the first time I think she asked me something about, and I was like, I don't want to be friends with you. I don't want to be friends with them. Like, and and I, you can see it on my face. It's kind of disgust. Like, no, basically, screw all these people. You guys don't have anything to offer me. That's that's how Westboro frames it. Mm -hmm. We have nothing to learn from these people. Um, but yeah, like I, I just I started to connect with people, and because they were they were very different from my family, you know? I loved my family and I was very close to them, but right. like it was it was intriguing. Like I want to know where they're coming from. Like why don't you think this is right? Like why how can you think that this like don't you see that this is just <laughs> right. inevitably true? I don't understand. <laughs> right. One of the groups that Megan had gotten on Twitter to preach to were Jews because the church, not surprisingly, had extreme views on Judaism. And one of the people she had made contact with was a man named David Abbott Bull, who ran a Jewish-themed culture website out of Jerusalem called Jewlicious. While initially the two had sparred online, over time, their sparring turned into actual quasi-conversation, and then to something even resembling friendship, which led to a very strange scene when the Westboro Baptist Church made plans to picket the General Assembly of the Jewish Federations in New Orleans. David, who was attending the assembly, told Megan... He'd meet her there. He had told me that he was going to bring me halva, um, this dessert, Middle Eastern dessert, mm -hmm. um, from the market near where he lives in Jerusalem. And knowing that he was going to bring me this thing, and this is a very Midwestern thing, um, I felt like I, I couldn't show up and not have something for him too. So I got him some of my favorite peppermint chocolate, not thinking at all about, like, of course, I didn't think he's an Orthodox Jew, like, he keeps kosher. Like, it didn't even occur to me to think about it in those terms. And so as we're standing there, like, he, he I'm holding, like, four signs. So he puts the halva on the ground next to me, and I pull the 
chalk it out and hand it to him. And so I'm, you know, holding, you know, signs about, you know, God hates Jews. And uh, he hands, uh, he flips over the the chocolate bar and starts teaching me about the kosher symbols on the packaging. So it was kosher, so he could eat it. But it was just like this very surreal moment of like me very earnestly listening and like asking him questions about um, the <laughs> Jewish dietary code and holding a sign about how God hates Jews. Anyways, um, shortly after that picket, though, we had this conversation. So David would ask me about signs that we held and doctrines that we held, like thinking that he had found something that that was a contradiction. So he asked me about a sign that we had that called for the death penalty for gays. And he said, yeah, but uh, didn't your didn't didn't your mother have a child out of wedlock? And the way that we always responded to that was to say, um, it's like, yes, the standard of God isn't sinlessness, it's repentance, and she repented of that sin. And he says, yeah, but that, that's also a sin that deserves the death penalty, according to the Old Testament. Um, and, and I said, he said, he said also, and didn't Jesus say, let he who is without sin cast the first stone? And the way that we always responded to that was to say, we're not casting stones, we're preaching words, and we're standing on the public sidewalk with um, the message of God. Like, we're not, we're not stoning anybody. And he says, yeah, he points out the obvious problem with that, which is that he says, yeah, but you're, you're advocating that the government cast stones. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess we are. And then, you know, he connected it to, like, if your mother had been, um, if your mother had been killed when she sinned, she wouldn't have had the opportunity to repent and be forgiven. And so it's just this, this conversation I have with David was the first time that I didn't have an answer. There was one other person that you were really starting to have um, that that you developed a, a relationship with on on Twitter too, and this was an anonymous user. Um, he eventually became much much less anonymous much later, <laughs> <laughs> but we'll get to that in a second. Um, at the at the time, who was this user? How did they? How did you first meet this user? And and, and what was the fir- what were your first interactions like? Um, I got. Over the first couple of years, I mean, year and a half or so when I was on Twitter, um, I was getting more and more attention for the church. Um, Celebrities were seeing what I was posting and retweeting them and responding to them. And all of their followers were then seeing these interactions. And so it was kind of just growing and growing and growing. And... So yeah, this guy is is one you know became one of those one of those users, and I could tell almost immediately just by the way that his he would kind of infrequently tweet me, but I could tell from the things that he was tweeting that he was reading everything that I posted, and at that point sometimes it was hundreds of tweets a day that I was posting responding to other people, and yeah, I just I I started to notice every time he tweeted, and it just became this like you know this this conversation you know he clearly disagreed with basically everything that we said. He he could not really, like, he had a really hard time understanding or, or believing that we could really believe the things that we were saying. But he was asking these questions and trying to understand mm-hmm. and and trying to kind of build, he was, he was trying to build a bridge, you know, kind of between from where I was to where he was. Um, I don't think he had anything, mm-hmm. I don't think he ever thought that it would work exactly, but it was intriguing to have the conversation, I think, for both of us. And and was it just like just trying to understand like why do you believe the things you believe? Yeah, like yeah, basically. and 
because he didn't have the kind of theological background that David did, his arguments were less about the Bible itself. Like he would listen to me quote things from the Bible, and it's like he would and he would go and he would read it. He would look it up and and he'd say like I I see that it says this thing, but the thing that he could never really get past was, for instance, like the funeral protests. He would, or any time we talked about, or you know, disparaging comments about the dead or their family, or um, he just could not see that this was a loving thing, and so he would constantly like it was one of those things like it was it was it was the thing that we argued about I think more than anything else, and he was kind of forcing me to think about the effect that we were having on other people, and the thing is, it was already starting to get to me, right. This this conversation, you know, he's he's challenging me in this in the same vein as David, um, you know, just kind of this gentle, respectful, considering where I'm coming from, but not really understanding it well enough to really challenge it. Um, and it eventually leads to, you know, whenever things would get kind of thorny, he would kind of change the subject. And one of those times, he said something about having he didn't have an answer for my for my challenging rhetorical question, and so he said. Well, I'd, something like I don't, I don't, I don't know about that, but I've never been beaten at words with friends, and I kind of impulsively responded with my username and a hashtag, and and a couple of days later he started a game of words with friends on words with friends, yeah. Words with friends, if you don't know, is an online game that's similar to Scrabble. On it, you can play games against friends, but the app also has this other feature, a chat feature. And it wasn't long before Megan and this anonymous Twitter user started having long conversations on words with friends. At first, it was about the beliefs of Westboro, but after a few months, they were talking about all sorts of things, music and books and things they found funny. And Megan started to realize, with some degree of alarm, that she was developing feelings for this guy. You do not, if you're a Westboro member, you can only marry another Westboro member. And this guy was not a believer and... And I knew that if I let those feelings for him um, derail me, that I would go to hell for eternity and that I would, and I, I just, I couldn't continue down that path. Had you guys spoken of feelings for each other though? He was the one actually who said first, he said, you know, I love you. You know, I do. It's not just the idea of you. I know you. And then he said, you also know I'm not coming to Topeka. I think he was kind of he was kind of convinced that I didn't really believe it that really it was like it was like a wink and a nod thing like I I just had to go along with it because of my family but that I didn't really in my heart believe it. He he just he saw some good in me and didn't think that it was possible that I that I really believed it. And what did you say back to him? I was crying. Um I thought it had to be completely clear to him how much I cared. But at that point I didn't actually acknowledge how deeply I felt about him. I basically just said, like, this is why I can't talk to you anymore. So you put it out there. You put it out there and you just, like, shut the door on him. Yeah. So Megan deleted words with friends, stopped talking to this man who she developed feelings for. But as much as she might have wanted to shut the door on this alternate secular life, she couldn't. Coming up, Megan makes a break for it. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with Megan Phelps Roper. By 2012, Megan had begun to seriously question the beliefs and practices of Westboro Baptist Church. And it all came to a head, and of all days, the 4th of July, Independence Day. Megan was with her younger sister, Grace, 
They both had the day off, and they had volunteered to help paint a new church member's basement. They were standing next to each other, painting a wall and listening to music. The, the so- a song came on, the, came on, and it was called Just One. I can't believe we get just one, you know, just one life. And there was a line that said, will I break and will I bow if I cannot let it go? And this is all like I had just that that the buildup of of all of this in my mind and the realization that, oh my God, what if we're just people? Like what if this isn't the place led by God himself? And it had never occurred to me, even in everything else, everything that had happened before, it had never actually crystallized in my mind that we could really fundamentally be wrong, our, our worldview um, be wrong. And it was absolutely devastating. I turned to put the paintbrush down, and when I turned, I saw my sister behind me. And you know what I said to her was, what if we weren't here? And she kind of she was like, we're a very touchy, we were very, very close, very touchy family. Um, so she like was running her fingers, like scratching my head because I was crying. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, what if we weren't here? And she kind of stopped moving. And she goes, what do you mean? And I said, what if we were somewhere else? Like, I, I couldn't say what if we left. Like, the reality of leaving is you completely lose everyone and everything. You are completely cut off from the church. You know, like I said, it's almost entirely our family. Um, both of our parents, um, all of our siblings, except one who had left many years earlier, um, all of our aunts, uncles, cousins, everything, our whole lives, our whole community, our whole support system, everything that had ever been important in our lives. And you, to leave means you're going out into this world that you've spent all your life antagonizing people who have every reason to hate you and no reason to give you a second chance. So what I'm proposing in saying those words is that, that's, I mean, that's the life that I'm suggesting to my beloved sister. And so that started the conversation. And that was a conversation that continued between Megan and her sister Grace for many, many months. Grace had always been something of a free spirit. If Megan was party line, Grace was always more of a questioner. So Grace was a natural confidant for Megan to voice her doubts to. And over time, those questions slowly changed from what if we weren't here to how do we leave? And it all came to a head one day in November of 2012 when Megan and her sister announced their plans. When that, the day came where we actually left, you know, my, we told my parents that we were, that we were leaving um, and a bunch of older people in the church, like I should say, it's not like, you know, if you hear stories of like Scientology or other cults or cult-like groups and they like are trying to force you to stay. Westboro is not like that. Right. They say, this is a volunteer army. If you don't want to be here, you don't belong here. And um, so we went to our rooms and started packing and a bunch of, um, you know, people in the church, people that I had been closest with, you know, my cousin, um, my aunt, whom I'm named after, um, a couple of my, my oldest brother and another elder and, you know, trying to convince us not to leave. Um, my mom came and asked me to go down to the church across that common backyard that we had that had been this, just this refuge for me all my life. And um, are folks, are folks angry? Are they pleading? Are they crying? Like, what's the mood? 
Yeah, all, all of the above. The elders, um, the two elders who came were yelling that I knew better than this, and, and I was just weeping. I couldn't really even say anything back. I just kept packing. Um, mm. My aunt, Margie, um, who I'd been so close with all my life, um, she was crying and, and also saying that, that I knew better than this, that I'd seen and said too much, that I know it's right, that she'd never asked anyone else to leave, not to leave. And all I could do was cry, you know, and tell her that I loved her. Um, it was, it was just, it was horrible. I, I felt like, you know, being faced, and I understand like why people leave in the middle of the night, why they don't want to have those conversations because you're, you're seeing this devastation, you're feeling it yourself and it feels like it's your fault, you know, because because they don't, you know, they're, I, nobody was kicking me out. Right. It was a choice that I was making, and it felt like I was causing all of this. And it wasn't until, you know, much later that I realized, like, I, I had made the choice to leave Westboro and this destructive ideology and the things that we were doing to hurt other people. I, I didn't leave my family, but I felt like I was doing that at the time. Hmm. After separating from their family and the church, Megan and Grace left the state and settled in Deadwood, South Dakota. And now, Megan had to embark on the difficult task of integrating with a society that she had spent her entire lifetime casting stones at. So now you're sort of very much on the other side, and, and I, I imagine sort of like the world that, you're, that you have entered is, is happy to claim you, sort of the secular world of like, you know, like, look, you know, sort of she came, she came to our side, I guess, sort of. That was definitely not a given, though, you know? Yeah, no, I know. I, no, definitely not. Definitely not. But I also would imagine, you know, to the, to, to the point of like what you were maybe afraid might happen, that like all the people who you were essentially um, hurting and saying these hateful things to you, they're also here, right? Like you're now circulating among people who you were coming after, um, gay people and Jewish people and people who were in probably um, incredibly traumatized by the things that you were saying. And, and like, how do you have conversations with somebody now who maybe lost loved ones in, in the AIDS epidemic having, you know, sort of tweeted, thank God for AIDS? Like, how do you, how do you navigate those conversations? Um, I think, I mean, initially, I thought that there was no way I could have those conversations. I thought I just had to kind of run away forever and hide from it all um, because I didn't think there was any way for me to live in the world if, unless I, unless I just pretended, maybe even, maybe change my name, maybe, you know. Um, and like I said, very, very quickly, I started to meet people. Especially, I mean, David Abedball, I've mentioned him several times here, and I think what he said and did to help change my mind before I left was enormous, but he also was hugely influential after I left because he basically said, like, you know, you there's real opportunity here for you to turn this around and do good and work for change. Um, he taught me this concept in Judaism called tikkun olam, which means to repair the world. And he said, like, you know, this is, we see this as the obligation of of every human being, you know, to see the brokenness in the world and to find ways to repair it. And it's a life's work and it's never done. 
And, you know, you and your family really added to the brokenness in the world. And, and I think you have the responsibility to repair it um, as much as you can. And that immediately resonated with me. I didn't, I didn't want to run away, but I didn't see a path to anything else. I, didn't, I just didn't think anybody would want to hear anything from me ever again. Um, and I especially, like, it's really difficult to come face-to-face with your own ignorance and arrogance, especially when it was in such a public, hurtful way. Um, it manifested in that horrible way that, that hurt so many people. And I just didn't know how to navigate it. And, and David was so helpful because he basically, he started inviting me back to these places and to these people um, that I had done so much harm to. And and really helped navigate those conversations and to and to give me the space to acknowledge and to apologize. Um, and like I said, to to try to find ways of making things better. And so you asked, how do I navigate those conversations? Um, I think a huge part of it is, uh, you know, first, I don't hide from anything that I've done. I, I never, I never went back and you know deleted all of those old tweets or Facebook posts or anything. I never tried to pretend like none of that, that those things didn't happen, and that they weren't as bad as they were, that they weren't as hurtful as they were. To really own that, and then to try to find ways of, um, of like I said, working for change. So, you know, becoming an advocate for these people and ideas that I was. Um, raised to despise, and like it, I think for me, and I, I've, I think the most amazing thing that came out of, you know, writing um, my book that came out in the fall was shortly after it it came out, I got a message from. Um, I mean, there were all kinds of responses from responses from people who grew up in similar environments, um, who either had left and lost their families and communities, or who were knew that, you know, they didn't believe in those things anymore and that they were just on the cusp of losing all of those things. Um, People who were trying to find, you know, ways of handling all of those things, you know, intellectually and emotionally and practically what their lives can look like and, and how to move on after those things. All of those things are incredibly meaningful to me. But like I said, this, this one message that I got from a young man who, he said, you know, when Westboro was at its, you know, the peak of its um, infamy, like when it was in the news all the time, you know, he was a teenager and struggling with his sexuality and that, you know, he would consume Westboro's content um, compulsively, like as a form of self-harm. And that seeing me dismantling those those doctrines and those ideas that I'd spent my life defending, that it had brought him peace and closure and hope, you know, to realize that, like, the people that are saying and doing these things are largely, I mean, that we're all a product of our environment and that, and that there is, the people can change and that they do change. And that, you know, as a, a friend of mine put it, you know, he's, he tries to see, um, he tries to see Westboro members and people like them as uh, future friends of his. Mm-hmm. What's your take on the truth these days? That is a big question. <laughs> um, I think, I think that we, I do believe that truth exists. I do think that it's very difficult for any one person to 
have a handle on what that exactly is in all its forms, in every context. And that, you know, so one of the things that I, that is, it's, it's constantly in my mind, um, is this idea of epistemological humility. I saw that, I saw it put that way somewhere. I can't remember where exactly. And I was like, oh my God, like this, yes, this is it. This is now the basis of my worldview, basically. It is the understanding that each one of us has a perspective that is inherently limited. We cannot see everything all the time. There are so many, there's so much outside of our experience that that we do not and cannot see. And that we can have strong opinions and believe, you know, that the thing that our experiences and the things that we've seen, they can lead us to these positions that we hold, but we have to be willing to hold them um, loosely, loosely enough so that when we encounter evidence and experience that shows our positions to be in error, that we can change those things, right? We have to be willing to acknowledge that we do not know everything, that we cannot know everything, and that we have to be willing and open to learning those things yeah. that are outside of our experience and to help us. So I feel like, so truth, I think, is it's not something that we ever arrive at. It's something that we're constantly in pursuit of. Um, and yeah, I, I just, I, I don't think it's going to, I don't think I'll ever we will never arrive, I guess, is what I just, is what I'm trying to say. What do you make of the fact that the that the place that I don't think anybody associates with epistemological humility, Twitter, <laughs> was was the place that arri- that helped you arrive at that at that view? I think part part of it is just that you know I think a lot, I think there are a number, quite a few people who, when they experience hate on Twitter. Like, it does actually hurt them. And for me, that really wasn't the case. I was able to wade through, you know, the the hatefulness to to get at the good stuff, I guess. <laughs> I, guess I, think that's, I think that's part of it. Um, but I also think, and, and I hope, that, that more... What I know is that people get to decide. We get to decide how we're going to engage. And I think right now there is such a sense of hopelessness in the national, international even, conversation that there's no point in reaching out to the people on the other side because they, they're never going to change. You know, as one of my favorite writers put it, like the, the language of public life has lost the character of generosity. And I think that's absolutely true. Um, but there's also this line, this is the epigraph of my book, and also is a huge part of how I see the world now. It's a line from The Great Gatsby, which says, reserving judgments is a matter of infinite hope. I think the lack of hope is kind of what leads us to to write people off and to think that we have to fight people. We have to fight them in their worldview. Um, and I just know that that wasn't what changed me. It was the people who were willing to suspend judgment, willing to engage even when I was saying things that they had to believe were horrible and insane to a certain extent, that they were, they, they had, that willingness completely changed the course of my life. And 
I think part of why I talk about what those people on Twitter did for me, why I talk about that so much, is because I, I hope other people can recognize that if even somebody like me, who was raised from birth to think that we had the answer and that I was willing to do whatever, wherever that took us, even, even when it was so hurtful to so many other people, if even I can be convinced that there's so much hope, there's so much reason to reach out to people, who, for instance, who voted for Donald Trump or who think that abortion is okay. Whatever side of any of these issues that you're on, it's worth having the conversation. And I hope people, I hope people can see that. There's an epilogue to this story. Remember that guy that Megan met on Twitter? The one she started playing words with friends with? The guy who told her he loved her and then she stopped talking to him? Well, she got back in touch with him shortly before she left the church. And it just so happens that he lived in South Dakota too, just a few hours from Megan's new home. Over the course of a couple months, three months, um, this guy said that he was going to come to Deadwood, that he would be in Deadwood, and that we would meet. And three times, he didn't come. And so I basically you know, was like, I, I can't keep doing this. I feel like this is an episode of Catfish, and maybe this isn't, you know, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head. Of course, in hindsight, I can completely understand why he would be hesitant to meet this former spokesperson, this ex-cult girl um, who used to celebrate tragedy, and, and maybe she's trying to lure me back to Kansas. Um, like, I could definitely understand all of that. Um, but at the time, I was just like, what is going on? And remember, so I never, I'd never dated anyone before. I had no experience, um, no experience with boys. And it just felt totally, and I had just obviously been cut off from my family and my whole life. Like I was totally lost. I had no idea who I was or what I was, what I was doing. So again, all of this, like I understand these are huge red flags for people <laughs> in relationships or, or looking to be maybe in relationships. Um, but then finally he texted me from a casino um, because, of course, Deadwood is full of casinos, um, at like 10 o'clock at night and, and said something about coming there to meet. And I told him, and I, and I was very certain of this, I, I thought this is going to be another setup and he's not really going to be there. This really is an episode of Catfish. And, and so what I said was, if I come there, if I get out of my comfy pajamas and come there and don't see you, I am so never talking to either one of us again. And I meant it. <laughs> um, but I did go, and he was there, and it was it was insane. It was the night of the St. Patrick's Day pub crawl, and he stood up at a blackjack table across the room, and and he looked exactly what I would expect. It. He had, I knew he was of Norwegian descent, so he was tall, blonde, um, blue-eyed guy, and we sat down at adjacent slot machines and talked for for two hours, and it was so strange because like. Two years had passed since he had first sent that tweet, and we had had all these like very deep conversations. And so this is the first time I'm actually like laying eyes on him, and it was the strangest feeling to like trying to assimilate the reality of this person sitting in front of me as the same person who'd had all of those incredibly deep, you know, life-altering conversations with. And we're talking about everything except what we what we're feeling, mm -hmm. right? And so we went on our first date um, about two months later, and we've been together ever since. Um, we got married in Norway in 2016, and now we have a 16-month-old baby girl who is the light of my life. And I am, 
I, I, I sit here. I'm in a small town in South Dakota now, that small town where he grew up. And I just am so baffled so much of the time. Like, I cannot believe that this is my life, you know, that I'm here, that I'm not on a picket line in, in Kansas. Megan's book about growing up and eventually leaving the Westboro Baptist Church is called Unfollow. Without Fail is hosted by me and produced by Caitlin Bokuki and Anna Ladd. It is edited by me and Devin Taylor. Mixing by Keegan Zemma. Music by Bobby Lord. Special thanks to Rob Chapman of Orca Media and Andrew Helms. If you like Without Fail, follow the show. You can get every episode for free through Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 